Welcome everyone, just a quick exciting note before we begin today, Best of the Left has been nominated for a podcast award, thanks entirely to those of you who took the time to nominate us, so thank you very much for that. Now, it is all hands on deck time, the voting process is happening at this moment, and you can vote once each day between now and March 24th, so clearly the shows with engaged audiences who are willing to vote every day have a huge advantage. That's where you come in. This show is up for the top prize in the People's Choice category, which is very exciting. And our friends over at the Majority Report are up for their fourth consecutive News and Politics Award. So if you support independent progressive media, set a daily reminder for yourself to vote each day for both Best of the Left and the Majority Report until the voting closes. And don't forget to verify each of your votes when they send you an email verification. And now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Tom Hartman program, The Majority Report, The David Pakman Show, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolf, and The Young Turks. In 1980, the Libertarian Party, uh, you know, in every, every presidential election in the modern era, they have run for president. Uh, their candidate for president in 1980... was, da, 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 I don't, yeah, it was Ed something. Anyhow, the vice presidential candidate was David Koch. That's what's important, I think, here. And he largely funded the Libertarian Party's campaign for president in 1980. And he, Ed Clark was his name, was the president. So it was Ed Clark and David Koch running for president of the United States in 1980, on the following platform, this was dug up by Bernie Sanders' staff. You can find this over at sanders.senate.gov slash coke-brothers. We urge the repeal of federal campaign finance laws. Right. Buy any politician you want. We favor the abolition of Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, we favor the deregulation of the medical insurance industry. Right. Let them do whatever they want. Let them screw anybody any way they want. We favor the repeal of Social Security. We propose the abolition of the governmental post office. We oppose all personal and corporate income taxation, including capital gains taxes. Oh, the rich get to keep everything. We support the eventual repeal of all taxation. And corporations, too. As an interim measure, all criminal and civil sanctions against tax evasion should be immediately terminated. Right. You can lie to the government now. It doesn't matter. We support repeal of all. I, I, this this would be funny if it wasn't that there are people who actually believe this stuff. This would be, I mean, you know, if Rand Paul was going to run as libertarian, if he was going to be true to his father's positions, he would be saying all of these things. We support repeal of all laws, uh, which, uh, well, you, let me just abbreviate these or it's going to take forever. Uh, repeal minimum wage laws. We condemn compulsory education laws and call for the immediate repeal of such laws. No more public schools. Repeal of all taxes on the income or property of private for-profit schools. Uh-huh. Abolish the, Depart the Environmental Protection Agency. Right, so your Georgia Pacific company making paper can dump all the waste it wants and really f smell up the neighborhood. We support abolition of the Department of Energy. We support, you know, abolition of the Department of Transportation. We demand the return of America's railroad system to private ownership. Right. Amtrak. We specifically oppose laws 
requiring safety belts, airbags, or crash helmets. Oh, brilliant. How are you going to pay for all these new emergency room visits? Uh, pay. It's freedom. We, we advocate abolition of the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, the Food and Drug Administration. We support an end to all subsidies, all welfare plans, the provision of tax-supported services for children. Abolish them all. We oppose all government welfare relief projects and, quote, aid to the poor, end quote, programs. We call for the privatization of the inland waterways. Yes, let the Koch brothers buy the Mississippi River. Lake Michigan, it's for sale. And we call for the privatization of the distribution system that brings water to industry, agriculture, and households. Koch brothers want to own your water. We call for the repeal of the Occupational Safety and Health Act. <laughs> Screw you if you get hurt in the workplace. We call for the abolition of the Consumer Product Safety Commission. Ah, oh, so what? Your toaster caught your house on fire. It's freedom. We support the repeal of all state usury laws. For those of you who don't know what the word usury means, it's biblical, actually. It means charging obscene or illegal amounts of interest. In other words, let the banks do what they want. To be fair, the libertarian view is that the individual freedom is good in and of itself, regardless of outcome. Yes. That is the thing that I think Greg doesn't fully understand in our back and forth. We are arguing what policy will achieve the best outcome when Greg and I argue. And occasionally those policies align with libertarian perspectives. And, and this, I would say, is the same for Jimmy Reefercake also, who wants me to defend or to establish. But for a libertarian, the first principle is not about the outcome. The first principle is in and of itself to increase freedom or liberty, again, whatever that means, as the stated goal. Do you understand do you understand the difference there? For a libertarian it is we must have total freedom and liberty and as a byproduct everybody will be better educated. <laughs> Which is why when you show them data that hey whatever your definition of freedom and liberty is and ever how you ever put that in practice the outcome is this it's not good they'll say well that's not relevant data is not relevant <laughs> and why they can never win those arguments because to normal human beings with all due respect to normal human beings people don't like that outcome the guy dying in the street because we all have the liberty to choose whether or not we're going to have health insurance, for most human beings who have empathy say, 
hey, that's not a good idea. The thing that we're pursuing that allows people to die in the street, as uh, Ron Paul basically said, that's not good. That's not the point of society. That's not why we organize. And that's why libertarians have such hard time debating these things because, I mean, at one point, I think it was uh, Peter Schiff's brother who said, well, the real problem is just Americans haven't gotten their heads around this yet. <laughs> yeah, it's right. They're not all sociopaths. And part of it also may be that um, they're not all winning under the rules of the game as it is now. And so they don't want to continue those rules and they don't want to reinforce them to pay off even more for those who are winning. And then uh, the libertarian will respond, well, those who are winning should win. That's right. By definition. By definition. Those who are winning should be winning. And those who are not winning, well, that's just their lot in life. And... That's the, that is, understand, for those who, who, who take an issue with me, uh, you know, criticizing libertarianism, because at the end of the day, the fundamental principle for libertarianism, to the extent that it's actually sincere, is this notion of liberty and freedom as the ultimate goal. And it's silliness. It's silliness. Because they're really banging their head against the idea that we're social beings. And they want us all to be, uh, who is that guy? Jeremiah Johnson. That uh, Robert Redford character who went off into the woods. Jeremiah Johnson made his way into the mountains Betting on forgetting all the troubles that he knew The trail was wide and narrow The eagle or the sparrow showed the path he was to follow as it flew Oftentimes we'll find that the story doesn't always go the way you had in mind. And Jeremiah's story was that kind. We've had some pretty good response when we've debunked juvenile absolutist libertarian ideals in the past. You'll remember a while a while back we talked about is slavery or is taxation a form of slavery? This is an, a common refrain from some libertarians. We debunk that. The reaction was was huge on both sides, people agreeing and disagreeing. So we're going to do another one here, okay, which is that libertarians are against men with guns using force to enforce the law, okay? 
So many libertarians, as proof that the government is a fr uh, oppressive or an illegal force, will say, you know what? If you don't do what the government says, whether it's taxation, whether it's following certain rules, whatever the case may be, ultimately, they send men with guns to force you into doing it. And that, by definition, is oppressive and a sign that government is completely illegitimate. Uh, so let's explore that, right? If you don't pay taxes, eventually, someone will show up at your house with guns, they'll take you into custody, and they'll put you in jail, and you won't be able to run away because they have guns and they're physically restraining you. And that, that is, of course, bad. This is not a spontaneous initiation of force, right? This is the enforcement of a social contract. This is, in, in this particular case with taxation, it's a very explicit social contract. Many libertarians will make a big deal out of the men, men with guns enforcing laws, yet they overlook the fact that men with guns are the basis of enforcement for any social system. If you think of the libertarian social system, right? Everybody fends for themselves. Uh, you protect, you, you delineate and protect your property. You uh, are, are in charge of your own security for people not stealing stuff from you. All of that stuff. You would also be doing the enforcement with guns. And it is arbitrary to say that it would be more or less legitimate for those individuals to be using those exact same guns to enforce their security or their, their land ownership. This is an obvious, Lewis, um, blind spot for this absolutist libertarian uh, allegation about men with guns using force. Right. Um, also, the guns are really there as a precautionary measure in case you don't comply. Um, you know, it's not like the guns are drawn. And also, chances are the the men with guns aren't going to show up uh, on your first uh, tax offense. Well, I that's, mean, the th that's exactly yeah. right. The social contract, right? Some will deny they're participating in a social contract by using government roads or working and owing taxes as a result of working or whatever the case may be. But they've benefited from the government assistance and infrastructure. Everything they own was delivered on government maintained and built roads. They presumably, if they have a job, they earn a living from a company that is at least to some extent regulated by the government. The reason their employer can't make them work 150 hours a week is because of the government. They aren't, um, uh, uh, they, they've received the exact same benefits as everybody else. So then to say that in spite of all of the benefits and protections that the government has provided them specifically, they are against the government using guns to enforce any laws. It is so utterly hypocritical and juvenile. It is. It really is silly. But um, you're not going to convince them of anything, David. They are. Uh, they are very strongly, um, or can I say, feverent? They're yeah. feverent about this. Yeah, and and they're uh, basically, in essence, they're trying to be freeloaders, right? They are participating in the society that the government is an integral part of, whether it's the providing of security, whether it's labor law, roads, utilities, etc. They're receiving all the benefits, but somehow they don't want to be participating in what funds that. Uh, I th yeah, go ahead. Maybe they don't even think about it. Maybe you'd have to say to them, well, try living your life for a week or a month uh, without using anything that the government provides you in any way, shape, or form. And if uh, they say that I can't really do it in this country, then you say, well, you have the choice to find a different country. 
If you can't find a different country where that's the case, maybe you re need to re reconsider whether it's really a good system if absolutely no country has adopted it. And if you look at the countries that are closer to what you would call an absolute libertarian uh, state of affairs, I don't think they're places you would really like to live. Right. Also, although perhaps not uh, legally, you are free to roam into the wilderness of Montana, uh, live completely off the grid and, and fend for yourself and not work. And uh, I don't know, maybe that will work for a few of them. It is your choice. Maybe you would avoid the men with guns enforcing any laws if you did that. Best of the left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. Three decades after her death, the writer Ayn Rand is still the subject of serious debate. And not just over how to pronounce her name. Ayn Rand or Ayn Rand or however the moderns pronounce it. Ayn Rand, not Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand. Why I'm told it's Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand became famous for her philosophy of objectivism, which is a nice way of saying being a selfish asshole. Why is it good to want others to be happy? We can make others happy when and if those others mean something to you selfishly. Rand illustrated her beliefs in novels like Atlas Shrugged and The Fountainhead, stories of rapey heroes complaining about how no one appreciates their true genius. My work done my way. Nothing else matters to me. And if that reminds you of anyone, it's probably someone like this. Until I'm done with my Lamborghini entrance, no one's allowed it. Make sure they know that, because if they start letting it out, they'll start kissing. What about my entry? Ayn Rand has always been popular with teenagers. But she's something you're supposed to grow out of, like ska music or hand jobs. Curiously, though, Rand's popularity persists among a certain type of adult. Mark Cuban, how many times have you read Fountain? Three complete times. You know, it's funny because I'll pick it up when I need motivation, but then if I read too far, I get too much motivation and, and I, I get too jittery, so I have to put it down. Yes, unbelievably, Mark Cuban's favorite book is about a misunderstood visionary who blows things up when he doesn't get his way. Cuban even named his 287-foot yacht Fountainhead because sometimes having a 287-foot yacht just isn't enough to warn people you're a douchebag. And Rand's influence extends even further. Ayn Rand, more than anyone else, did a fantastic job of explaining the morality of capitalism. I am a big fan of Ayn Rand and read all of her novels. Now let me encourage any of you who have not read Atlas Shrugged to go tomorrow, buy Atlas Shrugged and read it. However, Ayn Rand is an unlikely hero for conservatives because she was also pro-choice. A man who claims to defend rights and 
object to the right to have abortion. That's not defender of rights. And anti-God. I am against God for the reason that I don't want to destroy reason. No, not that one. The real God. What do I think of President Reagan? The best answer to give would be, but I don't think of him. And the more I see, the less I think. And in case that's making you start to fall for her, take a listen to her views on Native Americans. I do not think that they have any right to, to live in a country merely because they were born here and acted and lived like savages. Why would conservatives hold up as their idol someone who says things like that? Especially when there are so many other advocates for selfishness they could choose. Like Donald Trump. Part of the beauty of me is that I'm very rich. Or Drake. I'm a worry about me, give a fuck about you. To basically anyone on Bravo. I will kill you. All of which is enough to make you wonder, Ayn Rand, how is she still a thing? the government to tax. You believe that there should be no such thing as welfare legislation, unemployment compensation, regulation during times of stress, certain kinds of rent controls and things like that. That's right. I'm opposed to all forms of control. I am for an absolute, laissez-faire, free, unregulated economy. separate the government from economics. If you do not regulate production and trade, you will have peaceful cooperation and harmony and justice among them. So here's Tom Tillis. You recall who Tom Tillis is. Tom Tillis is the now senator of South of excuse me, North Carolina. He is uh, one of the guys who ushered in uh, all those um those bills in North Carolina when he was head of the um, uh, the assembly there, I guess, of the legislature, speaker of the, the legislature, whatever they call it, uh, in North Carolina, uh, to uh, curtail the voting rights of, uh, of African-Americans in particular. Um, and here he is espousing some of his, uh, I guess, libertarian pro-freedom philosophy folks. Uh, this is the outcome-based uh, pro-freedom philosophy that he uh, espouses. He was at the Bipartisan Policy Center. I don't know what that place is. And apparently he was at a Starbucks in 2010. And he was talking uh, to a woman about regulation. And he wanted to make a point to her. And uh, here's his point. You know, because you know how oppressive regulation could be, right? And the market can take care of all this stuff. All right, let's let's listen to the this insanity, which is also even insane on his own terms. Uh, we were talking about certain regulations where I felt like maybe you should allow businesses to opt out. Time we were sitting back uh, at a table that was near the uh, the restrooms, and one of the employees just came out. She said, "For example, don't you believe that this regulation that requires this uh, gentleman to wash his hands before he serves your food is important, should be on the books? As a matter of fact, I think it's, it's one that I can illustrate the point. I said, I don't have any problem with Starbucks if they choose to opt out of this policy as long as they post a sign that says, we don't require our employees to wash their hands after leaving the restaurant. The market will take care of that. 
No, that's brilliant. So what you should do is get rid of the health requirement uh, regulation because regulations like that are completely oppressive and regulate just that they announce that they don't wash their hands. So, I mean, just take it on his logic for a moment. Regulations are bad. Uh, businesses know what they're doing. We just need to regulate that they tell people that they're doing uh, what they're doing specifically. Well, now, wait a second. So uh, how about we also, um, you got no problem with us regulating what's in their food either, do you? In terms of like them announcing what their recipes are. And why, you know what? We should also probably announce what other things that the, well, we don't even pay our people anything. The guy doing your your cooking, he gets a quarter an hour. One, 25 cents. I mean, this is, this, I mean, aside from the fact, I'm just, let's not even talk about the health issues here. Let's just talk about the ridiculousness of libertarian arguments. This guy doesn't even realize that he's arbitrarily deciding which regulation is good or bad, even though he's starting with a a priori principle that regulations are bad. I mean, this just, there's no better illustration than this guy's illustration of how moronic libertarian ideas are. In practice. And then now let's just talk for a moment about the idea of like, it doesn't matter. We would, of course, the sign would have to be large enough so that everyone was aware that every time that they get some food, the guy who just took a poop may not have washed his hands. Okay? And, uh, in fact, he's not required in any way to wash his hands. And in fact, this, this, uh, Starbucks, we don't even put a sink in there. If the guy wants to wash his hands, he has to go outside, take a break, take time off, not get paid, and go find a place to him to wash his hands. So, the idea that, you know, maybe this would spread disease or anything like that, that's not even relevant. We can just let the marketplace take care of it. And if the market fails, you know, I'll tell you something. I walk to work just about every day. And when you walk by a, a storefront that has not shoveled its walk or an area where there's a building, they're building and they haven't shoveled their walk, it sucks. And I imagine if I was not as young and spry as I am, it could actually be very dangerous. And we rely on the businesses, right? It's their responsibility to – and if they don't, they're going to get a fine. Well, you know what? Here's the thing. I don't care if they get a fine or not because if it's just cheaper for them to pay the fine, then they pay the fine. Now, I don't even care if it's so big that it's onerous according to a libertarian. That sidewalk should be safe. It doesn't help an old lady or an old man if they slip and fracture their uh, their hip to know that, well, this guy's at least he's going to get fined. Well, if I could jump in for freedom for well, just one moment. <laughs> but, but let me just make this point here because the idea is that there are certain things where you need the government to intervene 
and the market forces don't correct it. And we talk about this in the context of uh, a, a company. Well, a company sells uh, products that are going to kill people. They'll be out of business eventually. If we're lucky, if all the market mechanisms, that's great. I lost my kid, but at least that company selling lead as candy is no longer in business once we have some type of, I guess, private association that tracks down who did it, even though they're uh, they're unimpeachable and they could never be bought by that company. I mean, the 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 the, the entire philosophy is so bankrupt. And to actually have a sitting senator, and this guy isn't posturing, right? He genuinely believes this. And he's not going to review that tape and go, hey, wait a second. I'm a total moron. I'm willing to require a business to inform everybody that they're endangering their customers, but I'm not willing to require that that company doesn't endanger their customers in an obvious way. I'm a real idiot. He's not going to say that. Libertarian capitalism killed one of my best friends. Libertarian capitalism also killed my father and the family of one of my co-workers. Let me explain. There are two ways that a nation can allow products to come into the marketplace. The libertarian, unregulated American way and the regulated capitalism European way. When a nation like the United States uses the libertarian way to bring goods to the marketplace, it lets corporations send whatever they damn well please into the marketplace, regardless of how dangerous it might be. The theory is that once people notice how deadly something is, they'll stop buying it, and the free market will magically correct itself. Nations that use the regulated European way, however, force manufacturers to prove that products are safe to use before they're made available to purchase. This is called the precautionary principle. It requires manufacturers to prove to government and thus to society, us, that the new product is safe before it's let into the marketplace. Here's how this country's libertarian approach to regulation killed my best friends, my father, and the family of one of my co-workers. Scientists and health experts knew as far back as a hundred years ago that asbestos caused a god-awful form of lung cancer called mesothelioma or mesothelioma. But because America does not use the precautionary principle, toxic asbestos was used in our homes, our workplaces, even our schools well into the 1970s. My friend Terry, Terry O'Connor, my friend Rob Witorski, my dad, all died of mesothelioma. My co-worker Heidi Tauber's life was torn apart by her parents' fight with the disease, and I believe that this pain led directly to her death two years ago. 
consider these human stories. Back when Terry and I owned an owned a uh, an herbal tea factory back in the seventies, neither one of us wanted to mow the lawn. We had this big old house we were running, and uh, the city hit us with a big fine for having a lawn that was like you know an eyesore. Now, Terry was an artist, and I was a rebel. I guess Terry was too. So instead of paying the fine. Terry designed some really elaborate labels for every weed in the front yard with their Latin names. And, you know, fully designed artwork. We put them on wooden stakes. We filled out the appropriate paperwork. And we had our front lawn designated as a botanical garden. Got us out of the big fine. I mean, we could have mowed the lawn in 15 minutes, right? But setting up a botanical garden, it took weeks of what are now very wonderful memories, frankly. But years earlier, at the motor wheel factory, where Terry worked for about a year before going to college, Terry was going through one to three pairs of asbestos gloves a day, along with his other factory workers. He had to use those gloves to remove burning hot steel wheel parts from a giant press that was three stories tall. The line went really fast, and it was dreadful work. I talked to Terry over the past few months almost every weekend by Skype, his oxygen tube was the least of his discomforts while chemo was flowing through his veins, adding a few more weeks, maybe a month or so to his life. Terry was a special guy. And America would be a better place if Terry, and the world, I think, would be a better place if Terry had been on this planet for another 10 or 20 years. I know I would be better if he was still here. His wife, his children, his grandchildren would be. Another story. My dad, Carl Hartman. Loved books, loved history. After spending two years in the Army during World War II, he was hoping to graduate from college and teach history. That's where I got it, right? He, in fact, he wanted to do it at the university level. He wanted to teach at the university level. If he could just hang on to the GI Bill, and he had a day job at a camera store, if he could just do that long enough to get a Ph.D. Started college in 1948, and in 1950, he'd been married for just a few months when the surprise came that forced him to drop out of college. His wife was pregnant with their first child. That would be my mom, and that first child was me. This was a time when husbands worked, wives tended the home, and being a good father and provider was one of the highest callings to which a man could aspire. So my dad dropped out of school kept his day job from 9 to 5 at the camera shop, got a second job at a metal, metal fabricating plant in Grand Rapids, working with molten hot metal from 7 p.m. to 4 a.m. He was exposed to toxic uh, asbestos for, well, most of that grueling shift. For much of uh, my mom's pregnancy and my first year, my dad slept three hours a night and caught up on weekends. In the process, he earned enough to get an apartment, cover the cost of starting a family, and over the next 45 years, he continued to work in the steel and machine industry. In later years, he worked as a bookkeeper and manager for Michigan Tool and Die Company, as, as my three younger brothers were born. In 2006, my dad injured himself tripping on the stairs and ended up in the hospital with a compression, a compression fracture of his spine. He had thought that that was causing all the pain he was having in his abdomen. Uh, the doctors discovered, though, that his lungs were filled with mesothelioma. The doctor told him he had six months to live, and he died with me sitting next to him. He died in excruciating pain. 
all because he wanted to do right by his family. Heidi Tauber, my co-host on KPOJ Radio back in Portland when I was doing the morning show there. She grew up in Libby, Montana. Her dad was a police officer. Her mom worked around the asbestos mines. Asbestos mining was a principal business for that town. The air was filled with asbestos dust. Both the Heidi's parents died from mesothelioma, as did many of the citizens of Libby. Heidi was wounded by that, uh, you know, by that, by them, by them dying, as well as the death of much of her extended family, and many of her childhood friends died from mesothelioma. In my opinion, her death a few years ago was partly caused by those wounds. Rob Witorski, one of our employees at the tea factory, one day when he was putting bags of extra white packaging peanuts, you know, the shipping peanuts, up in the attic, I mean, we, we got these things in these giant bags that were four, four feet across, you know, and, and they'd, uh, they'd bring a semi-truck. We'd get like, you know, 100 bags of it, filled the attic with them. Louise showed up with our oldest daughter, who was two years old at the time, and our daughter asked Rob where the bags, you know, what was in the bags. He and Terry told her that uh, this is where the snow gets stored for the winter. And she was so amazed. She was walking around for months telling everybody about how we were the keepers of the snow. Before Rob worked for us at the tea factory, he had also worked in the auto industry and was exposed to asbestos, just like Terry and just like my dad. All of these people were technically killed by asbestos, but they were really killed by the unregulated libertarian capitalism that allowed big corporations to put asbestos into the marketplace even though they knew it killed people. Deregulated, or our laissez-faire libertarian unregulated capitalism is what really killed my friends and my dad. We've now outlawed asbestos in the United States, but today, right now, there are more than 80,000 chemicals in our environment that we haven't even begun to test to find out how toxic or deadly they may be, and we're just beginning to look at the GMOs. Europe and Japan use the precautionary principle. They require you prove something safe before you put it in the marketplace, but our country is still one big libertarian experiment, and with exploding autism and cancer rates, we're probably going to find out in the next generation what's here right now that people are going to be looking back on in 30 years and saying, oh yeah, just like asbestos. Just like most podcasts, this show is sponsored by Audible, where you can get hundreds of thousands of audiobooks, radio shows, audio versions of periodicals, and more. You can get a free book of your choice by going to audiblepodcast.com slash best, which you can also find linked up on my website. I'm currently reading Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States, and I highly recommend it to anyone interested in getting a new perspective on how American society got to where it is today. Audible is selling this book for almost $90, but it can be yours for free by signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash best. So check it out, read along with me if you like, and let me know what you think. One of the major topics I wanted to deal with today also goes by the peculiar name uh, meritocracy. What do I mean? Well, this was brought to my attention by an article written by Joe Nocera, N-O-C-E-R-A, in the New York Times of December 27, 2014. It has to do with some studies of workers in Silicon Valley. 
that area around San Jose uh, in the bay part of northern California where we have a concentration of high-tech and computer-related uh, industries. And these studies ask the question, what portion of the workforces in Silicon Valley uh, are white males, U European and Asian males, versus what part are females and what part are others, particularly African Americans and Hispanic Americans. Uh, and the results were staggering. Uh, the proportion of women, uh, much, much, much lower than their proportion in the population, and the proportion of African Americans and Hispanics, much, much, much lower than what they are in the population. Something on the order of five, six, seven, eight percent of their workers were non-white, etc., etc. It wouldn't surprise very many people. Uh, it is not uh, diversity-based. Uh, the public relations of the companies involved there are, like LinkedIn, Google, and others, uh, but the reality is different, uh, and that should surprise no one. The question then is, why is this the case? It's like the question, why are there millions of people who have no jobs at all that we just discussed? And one of the answers given, and that's what I want to talk about, is the answer of meritocracy. And here's what that means. The people who have the jobs have them because they are better at that work than the others. In other words, men are so much better at computer work than women that that's why so few women relative to their 50% of the people uh, have those jobs. And white people are so much better at the work than Hispanic or African American. That's what meritocracy means. You have the job because of your merit, because of your skill, because of your capability, not as a discrimination favoring you. Mr. Nocera in the New York Times writes crystal clearly, with these kinds of numbers, that's not a, a credible argument. You cannot explain the absence of women on the grounds that they can't do the work, since we have endless examples of women who can, uh, and ditto for ha African Americans, and ditto for Hispanic Americans. So what is it? Well, Mr. Nocera would like us to believe that there's prejudice, Heaven forbid, there's prejudice. And there's a kind of growing up together, going to college together, kind of a friendship thing that makes people in the Silicon Valley hire the people they know, the people they went to school with. In short, they're friends. And that this is somehow uh, something we need to worry about. We shouldn't be fooled and misled by claims of merit. We should face uh, that we have a problem. I guess this means we should hire not so much based on friendship and hire not so much based on prejudice. Very nice sympathies, very nice recommendations, but they are very old and they clearly have not worked. So the question is not to repeat that prejudice is not a good idea and just hiring your friends is fundamentally unfair. Something has to be done to deal with this. I would like to take this conversation another step and talk more generally about meritocracy. The idea that the people who have a job are more meritorious than those who don't. They deserve it more. 
they're better at it, they work harder, they're more capable. Because the same logic applies then to why only a few people are on the board of directors of a company. Only a few people are the top managers, whereas many more people are just middle managers or lower managers or no managers at all. And if we are to believe meritocracy, this ranking of people somehow is supposed to reflect supposed to be explained by the capabilities they have, the merits they bring to the job. I would like to suggest for your consideration a radically different way of understanding what meritocracy is about, one that builds on Joe Nocera's piece for the New York Times. Here's my argument. We don't, as a system, our capitalist economic system, we don't create enough jobs at decent pay to take care of our people. We would all be better off if everybody who wanted a job had one, producing goods and services that would make our lives better. And I'm not talking about crazy production that uses up the environment. I'm talking about goods and or services that make our lives better. Our age, our period of being old, our period of being young, our period of being normal adults, etc., by providing the services, the parks, the recreation, the indulgence, the education, all the things that make a good life. We would be better off if everybody had a job and a decent income producing those things. But we don't live in a system that does that, because that's rational. We live in a system that says, if you're going to get a job, it's because some business is going to make a profit off of it. And you'll get the job if the business makes a profit, and you won't get the job if the business doesn't. We let profit determine jobs and our society, not our needs as a community. And that leaves us with a problem in capitalism. We don't create enough jobs, and we don't create enough good jobs, and we don't create enough jobs with decent income. So we have a problem. We have more people who want and need jobs than we have jobs for those people. Now, we could be honest, couldn't we, and say to the people, well, you happen to live in a system that doesn't provide for you. But the problem with that is it would lead people to then want to question the system, because that would be logical and intelligent. We don't want that, do we? Those of us who defend capitalism don't want there to be a debate about the system. So here we have instead meritocracy. We tell people, no, the reason you don't have a job, or the reason you don't have a good job, or the reason you don't have a job with high income is that you don't merit it. You see, the lack of a good job is your fault, you don't have the merit, rather than the fault of a system that doesn't provide work for its people. Meritocracy is an ideological construct. It's a way of softening, excusing a system that doesn't work by making people who don't have good jobs feel as though it's their fault, feel as though it's a, a failing of theirs rather than of a system they work in. And therefore it's doubly ins insidious. It keeps us from the debate about an economic system that we are long overdue to have. And it's doubly insidious because it makes people feel bad because they imagine wrongly that the fault is in them rather than in the system. They blame themselves. 
all of us have some responsibility for what happens in our lives, of course. But meritocracy blames your job situation on you as if you and your merits are all that's going on. We wouldn't have a meritocracy ideology. We wouldn't hurt people that way if we provided the work and the incomes that we're capable of as a people, that we're capable of technologically, but that we're held back from by a profit-based system that simply doesn't work that way. So my guess most people don't have time to uprise. They're too busy working, two jobs to survive. And they don't work as for important. They work us to make that profit. Someday we gotta stop it. Every song I've written is about more than music. We don't have to be living in this system. I can prove it. You heard of people's movement in the people's music revolution. Expect the current system to make solutions. Legalized drugs, set up help for the addicts. How can you imprison a person for falling in the bad habits? Instead of contracts for weapons, use that money for free transit. Free public transportation, the environmentalation. We could use that money in the cities to make them decent. And give homeless people homes. Skyscrapers are not needed. Use money that's building prisons on paying the teachers more. Stop working for profit. Start working to ensure our people's needs are met. Then we wouldn't have the poor. Libertarians are in favor of deregulation, especially uh, libertarians that consider themselves anarchists. They would rather live in a society where uh, you do not have to worry about certain regulations taking over. And if you're a hardworking individual, you're more likely to succeed so you don't need the government regulating everything and getting involved in your business now it's an interesting ideology and I've always been fascinated to see how it would play out if there was a so-called libertarian utopia well it turns out that there was a libertarian utopia and we have the results of what happened now uh, there was a man by the name of Ken Johnson he's a libertarian and he wanted to find a place in the world where libertarians and like-minded individuals can come together and live in harmony and not have to worry about government intervention and so he uh, started asking people who believe in this ideology to pay about forty eight thousand five hundred dollars for an acre and a half of land in Chile right and so they would go there and they would live their lives the way libertarians would want to live their lives free of any real rules right a bunch of people, including very wealthy investors, decided to do this. Okay, Now, Jeff Berwick, who was one of the original supporters of this project, said the following of this libertarian utopia, which, by the way, was referred to as Galt Gulch Chile. With the oppression of the over-regulated, over-taxed, war-riddled, and welfare-riddled society consuming the world, Ayn Rand's famous protagonist character, John Galt, came to conclude that he would not use his talents to support such a society any longer, driving him to create a community where scientists, investors, entrepreneurs, and many others would come together to escape from the confines of their daily lives to not only be free, but to thrive. I can't wait to see how they thrived in Chile. Uh, it's going to be great. Now, I believe. I believe. Ken Johnson is now uh, dealing with a number of lawsuits. And I think the best uh, testimony and the best account of why he's dealing with lawsuits comes from a libertarian by the name of Wendy McElroy. Okay? So she actually spent money to buy land in Chile and to be part of this new world, this utopia. right? And here's her account in her own words of what happened. I had the opportunity to ask a question of the salesman who showed my husband and me our property. 
I claimed it because I fell head over heels for the most beautiful tree I had ever seen. I felt an instant connection as though the two of us were old souls who had found each other. I couldn't believe it. I could see it, waking up each morning and having coffee under that tree, telling it about my plans for the day. Months later, in a Skype conference, I asked the then GGC alienated salesman, when you sold us the property, when you printed out a photo from your phone that read Wendy's tree, did you know you could not legally sell us that lot you were offering? He said, that's correct. So really interesting thing, apparently this land was a nature reserve, okay? So they didn't even have the ability to sell this land, but they did so anyway, all right? So there's a legal issue there, but libertarians don't give a fuck about laws, right? So why is that an issue? Okay. Also, you're not able to do any type of zoning here, and she didn't know that. And so a bunch of the libertarians that actually invested in this land found out later that there is no zoning involved, and they're like, mm, we don't like that. Okay. <laughs> so, so at the very least, you had to get 10-acre lots. Yes. But they sold the lots to uh, under 10 acres, including to this woman. They sold an acre, uh, 1.25 uh, acres to her, right? But it, it's a rock-hard fact that in that area, you cannot uh, own the property if it's not at least... 10 acres. Mm -hmm. So that's why she asked the salesman, did you know that legally I couldn't build my dream house next to my dream tree? And I'm fascinated that libertarians are tree huggers. Good. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and he's like, yeah, I knew that. Yeah. But we, wait, wait, we wait, hold on, hold on. But aren't people inherently good? <laughs> no, it's okay. Now that all the libertarians have been suckered and lost all their money, they'll simply react to the market. And then next time they will find a better company. Right. Oh, wait. Their entire retirement savings is gone. No, look, this is a sad story. This was obviously a scam. But also, the aftermath of the story is ironic as well, because now all of these libertarians are involved in litigation. Wait, 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 what do you wait, mean? Wait, litigation? Wait. We're talking about litigation. Well, but that's the government. You don't want to go to the evil government to try to sort out who's right and wrong, right? I mean, why don't you just wait, let the market sort it out? Are you looking for someone to protect you? Wait, through, I, through regulations? Wait, now, are you trying to get the community to say, hey, that was wrong, and hence you owe this person money? Now, you don't want the community to do that, right? No, you're part of the free market, dude. Just, you let it go. You just don't work with them again in the future. You just that's go to it. a different company Lesson that's working learned. on a different libertarian utopia. You know what? You write, lesson learned, and you move on. Okay, by the way, Ken Johnson, who orchestrated this whole scam, he's in the wind. Okay, gone. Okay, they took down the website where you could buy the stuff. Gone. Okay. Now, again, if you're a libertarian, great. He's a Superman. They talk about how Supermen don't care about laws and they don't care about consequences and they don't care about other people. It turns out Ken Johnson, who you're suing, was the perfect libertarian. He he came, robbed all the other libertarians, took their money. Okay, according to their charges, right? And headed for the hills, the Chilean hills, which he couldn't legally sell to you. Okay, so I don't think you should complain at all. You should think, you know what? Finally, libertarianism done right. Sorry that we're enjoying it so much. Like I do feel bad for Wendy and, and the others, right? Yeah. But that we tried to warn you. Now, look, libertarians aren't wrong about everything. In fact, they're right about a lot of things. Yes. We are involved in too many wars. They do get into our personal lives too much. There's so much that we agree with you on. But you take it to an extreme, and when you take it to an extreme, this is the ridiculousness that happens. Of course we need laws, of course we need a community, of course we need government. The question is, how much government do we need? That is a legitimate and perfectly fair question. If you believe you don't need any government, 
you're going to get robbed. That's why we set up government in the first place, so we don't all get murdered, raped, and robbed. <laughs> the whole point. You missed the point. Now, unfortunately, a lot of those libertarians, they got the point, but a little too late. Hi, Jay. This is Jay calling from Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I've been listening to your show for a while now, but this is my first time calling it. Anyway, I just had a thought on the show you did the other day about drug addiction and the drug war. It really blew my mind after hearing that episode to think that the addictive qualities of the drugs themselves do not actually create drug addiction. The mental illness and other problems in a person's life might actually be the real cause. Um, I had a hard time wrapping my mind around this idea, but needless to say, I was very intrigued. Then it occurred to me that there are many things in a person's life other than drugs that we might consider candidates for addiction. There's food addiction, sex addiction, hoarding addiction, gambling, and so on. None of these things have the same kind of chemical qualities as drugs have that we typically consider being the primary cause for addiction. And no one says, you know, if you try a cheeseburger just one time, then you'll be addicted and your whole life is a drug. But people do become addicted to these things, and these non-drug addictions definitely can ruin people's lives just as much as, you know, a heroin addiction can. So it makes complete sense that there's some underlying cause for addiction itself that is unrelated to the substance or the activity that a person becomes addicted to. Mental illness, hopelessness, desperation, feeling destitute, isolation, and the other things talked about on that episode are probably really to blame. Anyway, my point is, once it clicked to me that there are so many other things besides drugs that people can develop crippling, life-ruining addictions to, yet in those circumstances, we never blame the substance in the same way that we blame drugs. The conclusions from that episode just became a lot easier to accept. The substance is not the cause of the addiction, the various circumstances of a person's life, or what may, might make them more prone to addiction. Anyway, I hope that made sense. I love your show, Jay. Keep up the good work. Hey, Jay. It's Chris from Colorado Springs. Um, I'm calling in response to the last episode you put out of drugs. It's an important topic, and I'm glad you put it out. Um, you know, I wanted to call and comment on the, the guy. I, I forget his name, but he was talking to Chris Hayes. And, you know, a lot of what he said did not sit right with me. Uh, full disclosure, I'm a meth addict and an alcoholic. I've been sober since... July 6, 2009. Um, first of all, about tooth decay, I don't know who the people who he studied, but the entire back of my mouth has been destroyed. I'm missing about half of my teeth, and I've had to have thousands of dollars worth of dental work done because of my abuse of meth. Now, the reason my back teeth got destroyed and not my front teeth is because I did not smoke meth. I did lines of meth, and the post-nasal drip of the meth coming down ate my teeth. Now, another thing about the chemical composition of meth, yes, it has a methyl group, but he is not taking to, into account all of the random things that meth producers, cooks, put into their meth to make it a lot more dangerous and a lot more addictive than Adderall. And now, they are chemically similar, yes, but I don't think people are getting Breaking Bad pure meth. People are getting bathtub meth that some crackhead's making up in his house and he's cutting it up and he's selling it to you. 
Now, on another note, this guy who was talking to Chris said he wanted to bring in nuance about the idea of addiction. I think he's absolutely right. But what I think he's missing and he's not understanding is that there's various degrees of addiction. I'm going to talk about alcoholism because that was my problem, my latest problem. I got sober off meth and then I started drinking and I became an alcoholic. Never really drank before. Here's the thing. There are things called moderate drinkers, hard drinkers, and alcoholics. Now, moderate drinkers are people who drink a lot. You might be like, damn, that person drinks a lot, but something happens in their life and they're able to stop. They get a new job, they get a girl, whatever it is, and they're able to quit. Okay, then you have hard drinkers, and these are people who drink even more. It might even affect their job. They might even lose a job. They might get a couple DUIs. Now, those people, even though they're worse off than the moderate drinkers, they still have the ability on their own power to go ahead and stop if circumstances weren't. And then there's something called the real alcoholic or the real drug addict. And these people lose the power of choice when it comes to their drug of choice. They can no longer differentiate between the true and the false. And they will continue to use and continue to use and continue to use no matter how much money you put in front of them for this one little study that you're doing. Now, in my experience, and, and I don't have a lot of experience, I'm not an expert, I'm not a scientist, all I know is that I used to drink every single day, I got kicked out of the military, I became homeless, nobody would talk to me, and then all of a sudden, I made a change, and that change involved a group of people who ended up helping me out, and I put a simple program in place, and since then, I've been able to not take a drink or a drug one day at a time for over 2,000 days. That, that's the only thing I have experience with. That doesn't make me an expert in everything. I just know how it works for me. And in my experience, minimizing the severity of addiction, which is what this guy seemed to do, doesn't do any good. There might be people out there who are moderate drinkers or drug addicts or hard drinkers or drug addicts who can stop on their own will, who will take that money if it's $20 or $30. And they may show signs of active addiction. However, there are people out there like me, and I see them three or four times a week when I, when I go to the places that I go to have the recovery that I have, that that is just simply not true. And men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by the alcohol or the drugs. And job or no job, wife or no wife, car or no car, whatever, it doesn't matter. None of that matters now that it affects my sobriety. And I could be broke and homeless tomorrow, and I'm not going to drink because I've changed my life now. But back before, you could have given me a girl, you could have given me a job, you could have given me a car, and it wouldn't have matter. I would have pissed it all away. Because anything that I put above my sobriety, I will lose, which is why it's the number one thing in my life. Now, I know I've rambled on a little bit. I just don't think, again, that it does anybody any good to minimize the thing that I have and that a lot of people have. It kills people every day and to just think oh it's not as bad as people think it is for some people they might absolutely be right but for others this is deadly serious and and I, I'm I see people I see bad things happen to a lot of people all the time when it comes to drugs and alcohol and I don't appreciate even though I respect science and I, I believe evidence when it's put in front of me I I, I question his participant set and, and I'd like to see that guy work with the people that I see and, and make the claims that he's making. Anyway, it's a really important show. I hope it starts a conversation. Thanks, Jay. Bye.
Okay, Jay, this is Melissa from New York. I'm calling uh, for your request in the email I sent. Um, so I have one thing to add into the intersectionality discussion that you did not quite cover in your um, example, and that is that it's important when thinking about intersectionality to not assume that any identities are default. That is, intersectionality does not just apply if you're black and a woman. Someone who is white and a woman um, is equivalently has the kinds of um, intersectional identities. And it's important to keep in mind that part of this is to dismantle the default. And part of the pile of shit that was stepped in was assuming that you can be gay or you can be black without having a gender or without being a woman. Um, and that's just incoherent, and that's part of the problem with what Patricia Arcott was saying, is it's just completely incoherent to perceive of those three things, uh, womanhood, blackness, and gayness, as three discrete categories. Um, all of them intersect. You can even be gay, black, and a woman. How incredible. Okay, I think that's everything I wanted to say. Love the show. Talk to you later. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Just a quick note on the podcast awards. Like I said at the beginning, it's very exciting. We're nominated in the top category there, the People's Choice category. Uh, I have no doubt that we can win it. It just takes audience engagement. So, uh, like I said, I highly recommend you set an alarm, vote every single day between now and March 24th. That's that's how it's going to get done. It, it, you know, it's not about who has the most downloads. It's not about you know a, a panel of judges deciding what show is the best. It is about audience engagement, and that's why they have voting every single day leading up to uh, to the end of the voting period. And and so the only way we can do it is with your help every single day. And uh, I think, as I also said, the majority report, our friends over there, are up for their fourth consecutive award in the news and politics category. So while you're you know voting for one, vote for the other. It's the easiest thing in the world. Now today, though, I want to follow up on what Melissa from New York called to talk about. Uh, she was the, le- the last voicemail we just heard. In the previous episode, you may have heard I was sick, I put out a rerun, but I did a fresh commentary because I wanted to start a conversation about intersectionality. And that's because over the last couple of weeks or so, there was a bit of a progressive media blow up about intersectionality. And it was clear that a lot of people have a lot of confusion about it, or they'd never heard of it before. It clearly requires some some clarification. So it, it's not a new concept, but a lot of people are new to the concept and you know, need to be guided through it a, a bit. So what Melissa brought up is, is sort of the default person fallacy, the, the wrong-headed idea that there is such a thing as just an average person, just, just the default person who you think of a think of a regular human, who is that human? And maybe the best way to explain this is, is to fall back on the topic of privilege, which we talk about a lot on this show, so you maybe have a, a deeper understanding of that. Privilege and intersectionality are, are deeply entwined with each other, and, and they're sort of coming at the same issue from different angles. So with the idea of privilege, there actually is sort of an archetype that, that you can point to as an extremely privileged person in America. So that's going to be you know, a, a white, male, straight, cisgender, wealthy able-bodied person, and so on and so on, you get the idea. That's the archetype for privilege in America. 
Now, intersectionality is coming at the same discussion from the exact opposite side, where there is no archetype because intersectionality, another easy way of saying it, is to speak inclusively about everyone. So intersectionality is recognizing that every person on the planet falls in all of these various categories one way or another. Everyone has some sort of a race, everyone has some gender, everyone has some sexual orientation, everyone has some uh, you know, social class, and so on and so on. And so to speak about intersectionality and to try to speak inclusively is to recognize that no matter where a person falls on any of those categories, they deserve to be treated equally, uh, be received with, with respect, and be included in the conversation as an equal. So, whereas there is a poster child for privilege, there should not be a poster child for humanity. And so, intersectionality is in the, uh, the, def the, the fallacy of there being a default person is you know, that's what intersectionality and inclusivity is trying to get rid of because there should be no poster child for humanity. That is how the unearned privileges and the undue marginalizations that exist today only get perpetuated. So then, you know, how do we achieve this, right? How do we achieve this language of inclusivity and talk about intersectionality? Now, painfully simple-minded people will think, that in order to be inclusive, you must have to specifically mention every possible permutation of all of the intersections that any individual could possibly have. You know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of possibilities. I, I guess if you're going to talk about one, you have to specifically mention every single one of them. Well, this is completely asinine. Uh, no one is asking for that, and anyone saying it or suggesting it is only embarrassing themselves. No, the only thing you have to do to be inclusive is to not be specifically exclusive. Just don't exclude people when you talk. And the other way to say that is erasure. Don't erase people when you talk about, you know, if you're talking about feminism, don't use language that makes it sound like you're only talking about white women or straight women and so on. Make sure that you're being inclusive of everybody. Now, just a quick and dirty example of this, it was just brought to my attention recently that Sheryl Sandberg, that she's the COO of Facebook, the, you know, the lean-in woman, she wrote an article, uh, you know, about feminism, well, of course, she doesn't use the word feminism, I guess she's afraid of that or thinks it's toxic or something. So she, she's writing this article trying to uh, talk about gender parity, but the framing of it was entirely about straight women who are married to men. So, I mean, yeah, a lot of women are straight and a lot of women are married to men, but clearly that's excluding anyone who doesn't fall into that like sort of narrow definition of a woman. And so, yeah, like, using that language excludes a lot of people and, you know, erases them from the conversation. And the point is, she's, she doesn't mean she's a bad person or has bad intentions. It just means you could do a hell of a lot better. It's just not that difficult to have this conversation and not frame it that way. You can frame it in a way that includes everyone. And, and you know, my, my, my last point is to reiterate something I said in the previous show is that people will think, well, if, 
you know, if we're talking about women, but then we insist on also uh, recognizing uh, different genders or different sexual orientations and, you know, different classes and so on and so on. Well, why are we dividing ourselves this way? Isn't it divisive to talk about intersectionality because, you know, instead of talking about all women, well, now we're talking about all these tiny little groups of women. Well, having differences doesn't have to create divides, but not recognizing the differences that there are between people ends up ignoring huge parts of people's core identities and their lived experiences, and it should be self-explanatory why that in and of itself is detrimental to a movement where you are trying to include everyone and get everyone to work together towards a shared goal. And so it does all of that while perpetuating the narrative of a default person and further entrenching the ideas of what a normal, quote-unquote, person looks like. Now, if you have any questions to ask, comments to add, or anything else, the number again, 202-999-3991. I would love to hear from you. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame how we get so trained We can see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can see past